the final days of every year wind down, I, I find myself in a pretty reflective mood. Right, This season between Christmas and, and New Year's for a lot of us, let's just be honest, we're kind of in this like holiday hangover where we're just exhausted. And, and it's even more so for me, I've got four little girls at home. So you can imagine my life is absolutely insane right now. The kids are home from school, but here's what I found in this season of life that, that even though all my kids are home, um, because a lot of my responsibilities here at the church are kind of on hiatus, I've actually found myself with a lot more time to just think and reflect because life is moving at a little bit of a slower pace, right? We don't have that crazy morning ritual of trying to get kids to school. I don't have all these meetings that I need to be in. And in this space, it's been so good for me because I've found that I've had time to think about all these things that I haven't really been thinking about lately. I spent a lot of time thinking about this last year. Uh, and, and honestly, 2018, pretty big year for my family. We moved here from California. That's huge. Uh, we, you know, kids started a new school, so that's wonderful. Thinking about the ministry we began here at Christ Community, which has been so good. Uh, thinking about some of the areas that I wish I could go back and maybe do some things over, some growth areas. Spent a little time thinking about 2019, some of the goals that I have. But honestly, the thing that I've been thinking about the most over these last few weeks is this sermon series that we're wrapping up today in the book of Ruth. And I haven't just been thinking about this series because I had a message to prepare. I've been thinking about this series and about this book because honestly, it impacted me in a way that I didn't think it would. Right? When we began the series, I thought to myself, hey, I'm gonna learn a bunch of stuff. Great, cool, awesome. I didn't think that it was gonna hit me close to home in my heart, right? When you read the gospels and you study that, of course that's gonna hit you, but a story of a widow from 2000 years ago why would that, that impact me the way that it has? All right, so I spent some time thinking about that, trying to figure out why it was, and I think I got the answer. It has to do with some things that I experienced in my childhood. And so if you'll allow me, I wanna tell you a brief story about this experience that I had as a kid that's been pretty significant in my life. Um, and the reason I wanna tell you this is kind of twofold. One, I wanna give you a window into my soul so that you can better understand me. But two, I also want you guys to understand everything that I'm gonna say for the rest of our time together, because this story is gonna give a lot of context. So for the first half of my childhood, I grew up in a pretty broken home. By the time I was four years old, my mom and dad who had had a really tumultuous marriage that was full of fighting, there was a lot of violence, there was poverty. Uh, by the time I was four, my parents got a divorce. And my, uh, my, my siblings and I, I've got a twin sister and an older brother. We went to live with our mom. We lived in a trailer park in Mentone, California. And my dad, he lived in an apartment in the nearby Moreno Valley. And, and so even though we were with our mom for the, you know, like the majority of the time, every other weekend, we got to go spend time with our dad. And, and man, I love these weekend trips to my dad's house because my dad, he was, well, he was my hero. Right? I always thought that when I get older, I wanna be just like my dad. And, and it's funny, right? Like this even started to show itself even as a little kid when we go over to his apartment. My, my dad was like a musician. He wasn't a really good musician. He was just like a local musician, but he would go around and play all these concerts. And so I always thought to myself, man, I wanna be a musician too. And so when we'd go over there, I would take his guitar and I'd take this little like recording device and I'd go in the bathroom and I'd start making my own songs and singing them. And, and they were terrible, right? I couldn't play the guitar. I couldn't strum the thing. I'm pretty sure I just sang about my love for Taco Bell. Um, 
No, that's a real thing. I'd, I'd call the, the taco meat dog food meat. Um, Dude, it looks like it. I'm being honest, right? That, that meat does not look tasty, but it was really good. And so I'd sing these songs and I'd share them with my dad and he'd be super proud of me. And, and the whole point of that is like, I just, I wanted to be like him because I loved him, right? And I'm sure you guys know what that's like if you have a dad that you look up to as well. Well, I remember this one particular weekend we were supposed to go stay with him. I was in the second grade. I was seven years old um, and I was really excited to go be with him because earlier in the week, he had told my brother and I that he had bought us this electric drum set. Right, it was like all black, it had green neon all around it. And he told us he had set it up in the garage and that he was gonna teach us to play. And so you've got to imagine me, this little seven-year-old kid, I'm excited, right? I'm gonna be a rock star. So the whole ride over to my dad's apartment, I'm like drumming on the back seat of the car, which you can imagine made my mom very excited. She's like yelling at us to stop. She's probably very excited to go drop us off. And, and so when we get there, all of us kids, we get out of the car, we grab our stuff, and then we run up to the stairs where my dad's apartment is. And we knock on the door but there was no answer. And that was a little weird because every time we knocked on the door in the past, he would fling that door open. He'd pick us up and give us a big hug and a kiss. And so I, I looked into the windows and there were these like little kind of slits because they're really you know, cheap blinds that were protecting it, but it was all dark inside and I couldn't see anything. So I figured, man, maybe he's down in the garage. And so we go down with our mom to the garage thinking that maybe he's in there waiting with this drum set. And when we walk around the corner, we see the garage is open. So when I go in, I expect to see my dad there, but he's not. Instead, we see his neighbor with his kid going through a bunch of boxes that have been left in there. And as we talked with the neighbor, we came to find out that my dad had actually moved out the day before without telling us. And that when he moved out, he had taken everything that was important to him, everything that was valuable to him, and he had loaded it up in his truck. And everything that wasn't important, he had left there in the garage, including that new drum set he had bought for us. I haven't heard from or seen my dad since that day. And that day, even though it is only one day in the more than 11 and a half thousand days that I've been alive, it has been one of the most impactful days of my life. And it's because of the message that I internalized. You see, on that day, my dad told me that I didn't matter. That, that day, my dad told me that I wasn't worth sticking around for, that I wasn't one of the important things, that I wasn't one of the cherished things that he wanted to put in the truck and take with him instead. I was one of the unimportant things that got left there in that garage. That was the day that I received my deepest wound. It was the wound of abandonment, the wound of rejection. And that wound has been affecting me in some pretty significant ways ever since then. And this wound has been so destructive in my life because it's caused me to believe some things about myself and about God and about this world that just aren't true. And what's so crazy to me is that as an adult, I can, I can recognize these lies that I've believed, right? I can cognitively think my way out of them. I can see them for what they are. But if I'm being honest with you, there's still this struggle that I have deep in my heart with believing those messages that I internalized as a little kid. I don't wanna believe them, but I still do. See, that's why this series and this journey through the book of Ruth has been so significant for me. Because as we've walked through this story, God has been speaking truth directly into those areas of my life where I have experienced my deepest wounds. 
And this truth has been confronting the lies of those messages that I embraced. And because of how the spirit has been moving in my heart, I've been starting to find freedom and it's so good. And so for our time together today, I get the privilege and the honor of opening my heart to you as I share some truths that have stood out to me as we've walked through this book. We're not gonna be in any specific passage, but rather I just get to share my heart with you. And it's my hope and my prayer that as we do this, that the spirit would be speaking life and truth into some of the areas where maybe you like me have embraced a false message and believed a lie. So before we move any further, I would love to just pause and pray for our time. Would you join me? God, I thank you that you are a loving, compassionate father who always pursues us. Holy Spirit, we know that you are in this place and I just ask that you would make us receptive to what you want to say today. If there is anything that would keep us from hearing that, God, would you just silence it so that we could only hear you? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been around here these past few months, you probably have a pretty good idea of how the book of Ruth unfolds. Right, you know, at the beginning of the book, we find out that there's this guy named Elimelech uh, who, who had moved to Moab with his wife and his sons and, and, and tragedy struck them, right? Elimelech died, his two sons died. And, and the problem is, is that this left behind Elimelech's wife, Naomi, and his two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. By the way, when you guys are reading this, does anybody else accidentally say Oprah? No, is that just me? Like every time I'm reading this, I'm like, say Orpah, not Oprah. Um, but but any, anyway, so, so Naomi at this point, she recognizes this predicament that she's in, right? She's a poor widow in a foreign country. So she makes this decision that she's gonna leave Moab and she's gonna go back to Israel, which is where she's from. Now her plan was to go back alone. And so she gets her daughter-in-laws together with her and she says, hey, I'm gonna go alone and I want you guys to stay behind. I'm gonna release you from any obligation you might feel to go with me, go back to your family, go find a new husband, go have children, go get a fresh start. Well, in chapter one, verse 14, we see her daughter-in-law's response. It says that they lifted up their voices and they wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. All right, a little bit later, we find out that, that Orpah actually takes Naomi up on this advice because she sees the wisdom of it. So she decides to return to her family and to get this fresh start that Naomi wanted for her. But Ruth, on the other hand, she refuses. Instead, she clings to Naomi. She literally holds on to her. Now, now at first, Naomi is resisting Ruth. She begs her to go home. Now, this is a really compassionate thing that Naomi is doing here for Ruth because she knows the hardship that Ruth would have to endure if she went back to Israel as a widow. I mean, she doesn't want that for her. She loves her. And so she begs her to leave. But Ruth responds, she says this in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. You see, Ruth refuses to give in to Naomi's request. Instead, she tells her that whatever may come, she's not going anywhere. For better or worse, she is with her. That's because she is for her. Now, what Ruth is doing, this isn't a normal response at that time. What, what Orpah did, that was the normal response, 
right? To go back. That was the expected response. But what Ruth is doing, people would have thought she was crazy. And that's because Naomi literally had nothing that she could offer Ruth. That there was no money, that there were no connections, there were no other sons that she could give her in marriage. And yet still, Ruth refuses to walk away. It's because she loved her, right? And that's not just like a casual, oh, I love you, love. Like this is a real love. It's what we've been talking about in this series, this said love. It's a love that's unrelenting. It's a love that's unyielding. It's a love that doesn't give up when times are hard. It's a love that has no strings attached to it. It's a selfless love. It's not selfish. It's a stubborn love. You know, when Pastor Setson was preaching uh, about this particular passage a couple months ago, one of the things he said that really struck out to me um, was that this book of Ruth would actually be a really good prologue to the Gospels. You guys remember that? And, and, and the reason that he said this is because of what we see unfolding here. The way that Ruth loves Naomi, her commitment to her, even though she wasn't going to get anything out of it, this stubborn love, that's exactly the way that God loves us in the Gospels. You see, his love has no strings attached to it. That's why he sent his son. His love never gives up on us. It's a said, stubborn love. You know, this interaction between Ruth and Naomi, it really stood out to me because it spoke a truth into my own woundedness. It spoke a truth that confronts a lie that I've believed for so long. And it's that I don't have to earn God's love. I don't have to earn God's love. You see, when my dad left, it did a lot of things to me. It made me feel really insecure. It made me feel worthless. And because of all this, as I started to grow up, I made this decision and it was probably even unconscious at first, but I made this decision that as I live my life, I was gonna prove him wrong, that I was gonna prove that I was worth something, that I had value. Honestly, I think that's why I've been so driven and ambitious in my life. I think that's why I've tried to do so much. It's because well, my sense of value and worth has been directly tied to what I can do, produce, and accomplish. So the more that I do, the more that I accomplish, the higher up I rise, the better I feel about myself. So what I've come to recognize is that I'm only trying to compensate for all those things that I never got as a kid. And I hate to admit this, but that kind of thinking has even shaped the way that I approach my relationship with God. My default way of thinking tells me that for God to love me, I first have to be lovable. That I have to actually have something to offer him in return, something to make it worth his while, that I have to do something to earn that love from him. And maybe you felt that too. Maybe that's your story. As we look at the book of Ruth though, when we see this has said love, when we look at the rest of scripture and we see that God has always loved us that same way, we can see this lie for what it is. We don't have to earn his love. In fact, we can't earn God's love because that's not how love works. There aren't strings attached to love. Real love has said love. It is something that is freely given. It's completely unearned. The apostle John, who's one of Jesus's closest friends, he had to say this about the way that God loves us. He says that we love, why? Because he first loved us. 
You see, the Hesed love of God is something that he demonstrated to us before we could do anything to deserve it. It doesn't say that he loved us once we were lovable. It doesn't say that he loved us once we decided to love him. It says that he loved us first. Brothers, sisters, let this beautiful truth sink in. God loved you before you ever loved him. Do you believe this? I'm not just asking if you believe it in your head, but do you believe this in your heart? Is your belief in this truth evident in the way that you live? Are you living your life trying to earn God's love or are you living your life as a response to the realization that you already are loved? We don't have to earn his love. There was something else that really stood out to me as we walked through this series. And it was the way that Ruth carried herself. Because even in some pretty difficult situations, I don't know if you caught this, but Ruth had a ton of integrity in the ways in which she responded to these different things that life threw at her. And I think the reason that I was so captivated by the way that she handled all of this is because in my life, I know that when I face hardship, I haven't handled it the same way, right? When bad things happen to me, I start complaining. Right? When bad things start happening to me, I start to whine. I start to talk about how unfair it is. I try to fight against the system. And, and a lot of times, honestly, I feel pretty good about those responses. I feel pretty justified in how I respond. That is until I look at somebody like Ruth and I see her purity and her integrity and her character. You see, all throughout this book, her character is on display. I mean, from the beginning to the end, she, she goes back to Judah with Naomi when she didn't have to. And when they get back there, every day she goes out into the fields and engages in some really intense manual labor just to get enough food for her and Naomi to survive off of. And here's the thing that blew me away about her. Not once do we see her complaining about any of this. She just does it. Well, there's this one day while she's out in the field, um, and, and, and the owner of the field, this guy named Boaz notices her. And, and so he calls the servants over and says, hey, this, this woman, what is her story? And they go on to tell him everything about Ruth, about you know, coming back from Moab with Naomi, about coming out every day and going to all the other fields like she was doing just to try to get enough food for them to survive. And Boaz, when he hears all of this, he is impressed. So he comes up to Ruth and says, hey, hey, Ruth, um, I hear you're going to all these other fields. You're trying to get enough food. Uh, I just want to let you know, you don't have to do that anymore. I'm going to make sure that my workers here in this field leave enough behind for you to gather. And it's going to be enough for both you and Naomi to survive off of. So just stay here. I got you covered. Well, when Ruth hears this, she's kind of overcome by this generosity. She doesn't understand it. She knows she's a foreigner. She goes, why are you doing this? Why are you helping me? And I love his response. He answered her. He said this, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land. And you came to a people that you did not know before. Basically what Boaz tells her is this, is that his generosity towards her has been directly influenced by her treatment of Naomi because she had character and integrity and in the relationship with her mother-in-law. Boaz blessed her. Here's the thing that stands out to me about Ruth. In everything she did, she allowed her character to guide her actions and decisions, not her needs, not her desires, 
instead of allowing those things to dictate what she would do, right, which might cause her to cut some corners, might cause her to make some compromises. Instead, she allowed who she was, right, the commitment she had made, that character, that integrity, she allowed that to dictate everything that she did. It informed how she behaved and it informed how she treated other people. You see, the way that Ruth handled herself is a reminder to me that my character matters. That's the second thing that jumped out to me in this series. My character matters. Look, here's the reality. It's really dangerous when we don't commit to being a people of character. Because when we start to believe that our character doesn't matter, when we start to believe that right biblical living doesn't matter, when we believe that it's optional, that's when we're gonna start to make some compromises. And these compromises are are not just gonna be in some of our behavior, they're gonna be compromises of some of our most deeply held convictions. Now, initially these compromises are probably small, but as time goes on, they're gonna get bigger and bigger. And here's what's gonna happen with enough time, with enough compromise, it's gonna leave a wake of destruction, not only in in, in our own life, but also in the lives of all the people who are around us. You know, my my wife and I were on the receiving end of this wake of destruction a couple years ago when I was on the staff at a church up in the Pacific Northwest. You know, when we were there, we had this, uh, you know, famous pastor, you know, whatever that means, who got to travel all over the world, speaking at conferences, right? He was the one that got to write all these books. We'd always have all these teams of pastors and leaders from other churches all over the world coming to our church to study us, to figure out, okay, how can we take this and replicate this in our city and nation? Like, Like anybody who looked at us on the outside would have thought that we were healthy. And the reason they thought this is because we were growing, I mean, we were a massive church. We had this global influence. What could possibly go wrong? Well, unbeknownst to a lot of the people who are looking at us from afar, there was actually something lurking beneath the surface that was a pretty serious problem. And that was this. There was a significant lack of character in our executive leadership team. I'll never forget how this all came to a head. Um, Right right after Easter one year, there were some accusations that were made against our our lead pastor and some of the other executive leaders by former staff members and former members of our church. Um, You know, none of these were like crazy accusations, right? Nobody had been unfaithful to a spouse. Nobody had stolen money from the church. Um, but, But what became clear as these accusations were explored is that there was actually a pretty significant uh, lack of character in in these guys, that there was a deficiency um, in in the way that they treated other people and in some of the practices that they themselves engaged in, right? And so these things all came to light and here's where things really started to go bad. When our leaders were confronted with these claims, they didn't own them. They, They didn't repent. Instead, they just brushed them off to the side and dismissed them. And they said, they're not important. And the message that they communicated was this is because God is blessing us, because we're growing, because nothing bad has happened, then our character, these decisions that we make, how we actually treat people, how we actually live our lives, they don't matter. It's not important. That's what we were told. Well, six months later, after six months of refusing to deal with these issues, our church that was too big to fail ended up closing its doors and ceased to exist, leaving behind thousands of grieving people mourning the loss of their church and hundreds of staff members, including some people that I really, really loved who now had no way to provide for their families. It was a mess. 
You know, in the past few years, I've thought a lot about everything that happened at that church. And honestly, I think it probably could have been avoided. If our leadership had chosen the path of humility, if they had seen the areas where they needed to grow, if they had committed to developing their character, to admitting that it actually mattered, I believe that church would be alive and well today. I really do. I really do. You know, the thing that I've taken from that whole experience is the same thing that I've learned in this journey that we've had through Ruth, and that's that my character matters. Who I am matters. And it doesn't just matter when I'm up on a platform. It doesn't just matter when other people are looking at me. It doesn't just matter when I'm making posts on Facebook. It also matters when I'm on that phone call with that telemarketer. It also matters when that waiter or waitress brings me the wrong order. It also matters when I'm alone and nobody else is around, when it's just me and God. Character matters. And there's another reason why we need to focus on developing our character. Because not only does it protect us from compromising convictions and leaving a wake of destruction behind us, it's also that thing that's going to help us survive and thrive in the hard times that will inevitably come our way in life. That's what we see unfolding here in the book of Ruth. It was Ruth's character that allowed her to press on and take that next step, even though that next step seemed more hopeless than the last one she took. But what we see is that as Ruth kept taking these steps, some things began to change. We start to see the divine hand of providence moving behind the scenes in a way that she nor Naomi never could have predicted, setting her up not for despair, but for a future that is full of hope and blessing. See, after this encounter with Boaz in his field where he, he told Ruth that he'd leave enough food for them to survive on, uh, Naomi was actually reminded of a way out for Ruth. It was through this thing called the law of the kinsman redeemer. And Pastor Allen talked a lot about that, but basically what it is, is it's a, it's a law that said, if a man dies and he has a widow who hasn't had a kid yet, a near relative can come in, marry her, make her a wife, and then have kids for that uh, man who had passed away. And so when Naomi remembers this law, she tells Ruth to, to go to Boaz, who incidentally would have been the nearest relative who could redeem her, right? So, so she goes to him and Boaz, being an honorable man, agrees to do this for Ruth, right? So he goes through all the steps that he needs to in order to be able to redeem her. And then before all the people, he does exactly that. And we see it at the end of the book as Boaz makes this proclamation, he says, you are witnesses this day that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chalon and all to Malone. And this is my favorite part, right? This is the best part of the whole book. Verse 10 says, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malone, I have bought to be my wife. I love this so much because it is such a beautiful picture of how God works in the midst of what we think are impossible situations. If you remember back to the beginning of this book, when they were leaving Moab, Naomi thought that the only way that Ruth would ever have a future, a future that included a husband, a future that included a child, she thought the only way that she could ever experience any of that is if she stayed behind in Moab, if she went back to her old life. She thought that going to Judah, then moving forward, she thought that that was gonna make her a widow indefinitely. And yet here at the end, we see a different story written. Ruth isn't a widow. She's a wife. She has hope. She has a future. This whole journey that we see Ruth go through is a reminder to me that my past doesn't get the final word on my future. 
there have been so many times in my life where I've wished I could go back to that day where I was standing there in my dad's garage when I'd found out he left. I wish that I could give myself a hug. I wish that I could tell my seven-year-old self that it was all gonna be okay. That even though my earthly dad had left me, that even though he didn't want me, I still had a heavenly father who was there and that he would be a father who would never leave me. He'd be a father who would always love me. He'd be a father who was crazy about me, a father who wanted me. I wish I could tell myself these things because had I known then what I know now, I could have spared myself so much pain. I could have avoided so many of the mistakes that I've made. But as you know, that's not how life works. We don't get to go back and change the things that have happened. The past is the past. We can't change it. But here's what I've been coming to learn recently. Just because something is a part of your past, it doesn't mean that it has to be a part of your future. What happened to me in my past, the things that I've done, the things that have been done to me, what happened to you in your past, the things that you've done, the things that have been done to you, these things don't have to define who we are moving forward. Because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross, we have an open invitation to come to him with all of the shame, with all of the guilt, with all of the regrets, with all of the burdens, and to lay those things at his feet. And in doing so, he promises that he will give us rest. We'll find freedom. We will find new life. These three truths that have spoken into my own woundedness and brokenness, these are things that I need to remind myself of on a daily basis. Because when I don't, I just get stuck in this repetitive cycle of living, never moving forward, never making progress, always feeling overwhelmed by my own inadequacies, by my own failures. And when this happens, I just get complacent. And when I look ahead, I don't feel hope. I just feel despair. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're here and you're feeling that way as well. Because this last year, let's just be honest, maybe it hasn't been the best. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe your marriage fell apart. Or you've struggled with addiction or you've lost somebody you loved or you've faced financial ruin. And these things, they've just been eating away at you. They're all you can think about. They're consuming you. They're weighing down on you. And as we're at the end of the year, you're not looking hopefully towards 2019. You're kind of regretting, you're like dreading it. And all you're wondering is, how am I going to survive this next year? If that's where you're at, I just want you to know that there is hope for you. There really is. There's really hope that this coming year can be better than this last one. And that doesn't mean that your life is suddenly gonna get better. It doesn't mean that, you know, things are gonna be all peachy and perfect, right? There's still gonna be trials that you have to face. There's still gonna be hard times you have to endure. Your day-to-day -day circumstances may not change, but I promise you when you embrace these truths, there is something that will change. It's gonna be your perspective. It's gonna be your source of hope. 
Instead of having a hope that's rooted in your circumstances, in your day-to-day life, your hope is going to be rooted in the God who loves you with a hesed love, a love that doesn't give up, a love that doesn't walk away, a love that will not abandon you, a love that will have no strings attached to it. We can step into this next year with confidence, not because of who we are, not because of what we can do, but because of who God is because of what he can do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Ruth, for just this example of said love that she has been. God, that this has been an example to us of the way that you love us, of the way that you have pursued us. Father, would you help us accept that love? Would you help us embrace that love? Give us the courage to believe these things that we see. Holy Spirit, if there is any part of our life where we're still holding out, we ask that you would give us the courage to surrender. If there is any lie that we have believed, would you speak truth to that? If there is any wound that we're experiencing, today would we begin to find healing for it? Father, we love you. At this moment, we're gonna move back into a time of worship. And we're going to have a lot of ways that you can engage. We've got prayer partners around the room who would love to pray with you if there's anything in this message that that has hit you that you need to deal with. And we're going to sing some songs. We're going to praise our God. And so uh, at this moment, we're going to invite everybody to stand. And if you need to sit back down and pray as we're doing this, uh, please feel free to do that. But why don't we all stand and let's sing.